1: From home or on the road, catch a favorite story. You are listening to Catch the Story, the podcast where in each episode we bring you great stories told by dear storytellers. I'm your host, Lucia Matuonto, and it's time to catch the story. (laughs) Our first storyteller is Nadia Bruce Rawlings, who shares her story, Scars, which delves into the world of trauma and addiction. However, be aware that this episode contains mature themes and language unsuitable for children.
0: Now, let's begin with Nadia. This is Scars by Nadia Bruce Rawlings a small slight circle under my left cheekbone, where Casper the friendly dog bit me when I was perhaps three, after I had danced around him as he slept and wanted to let him know how much I loved his sweetness when he had kept me from falling down the stairs by blocking the landing. And so I lifted my skirt to show him my privates, but he didn't respond, so I kissed him, and startled him out of sleep, and he was old and cranky, but would never hurt his baby girl. But still he snarled and bit my cheek and I screamed and I saw blood and my mother freaked out and said that was it. He had to be put to sleep. She was sick of him. And then one day when I came home from the park, he was gone. Discolored odd shapes on both my knees from falling off bikes. Various neighbors in various Calgary suburbs would carry me home. And mom would pick out the pebbles as I sat on the edge of the tub and cried. She'd pour peroxide or rubbing alcohol or maybe betadine. It burned like crazy. And then I would grab my knee and the pressure would make more blood come out. And she'd wipe it again and pour more till the blood stopped. Long pieces of missing skin on my shins from learning to shave my legs. Age 12 and I had no breasts. But everyone else was shaving in grade 8. And it was bad enough i had to ask mom for a bra and she laughed and said they didn't make them that small she was from france and they didn't make them so small there and it turned out neither did they in norway but my friends from dallas and oklahoma had gotten theirs over summer break and i couldn't go to gym class without one my dad noticed my shaved legs first and yelled at me for being too brazen for 12 and later as the years went on he continued to scream at his baby who was shacking up with everyone in the goddamn country, such a stupid whore. With his Canadian voice and whiskey breath, it became whore, and spit would gather as his face grew red and Mom hovered in the background, trying to keep out of it so no one would get punched. Two-inch line on the left of my neck. It turns dark pink when I'm tired or stressed. At eighteen, I'd been snorting coke for three years, and the sinus and throat infections just stayed. The doctor never thought to tell me not to drink or drug on antibiotics. And the next thing I know, they're biopsing for lymphoma. And I'm sure I'll die. But then, it's negative. But the incision gets infected and explodes one night on my boyfriend. And I go into shock and end up in ICU for five days, where they lance my neck twice a day, and I first discover Percocet. Diagonal lines across the inside of my wrists the left far deeper than the right. I lived in the freshman dorms for a minute until the photography teacher asked me out to an animals concert in Philly one night, and the next moment we were banging it out in his apartment or the dark room all the time, and I got so angry when I found the naked photos of his ex, who was also a redhead, and I imagined if he took naked shots of her and not of me, he must love her more. He thought things I had done made me something evil and definitely a whore. He said I was going to hell because I wasn't accepting Jesus into my life, but finally I had enough of being a hell whore and had someone buy me whiskey and took apart a safety razor and sat in my dorm room and sliced and sliced and sliced. The resident assistant was pissed to be awakened to drive me to the ER and my roommate tried to hit on the doctor and the college made me leave and my mom confessed to me all her suicide attempts, and my dad said I didn't need a shrink because I was just a goddamn stupid whore who needed to learn a lesson, and the ex-boyfriend told my sister I was possessed by Satan, and she thought that might actually be an option. A deeper jagged cut across my artery on my left wrist. We always fought, and he was crazy with hallucinations and paranoia when he smoked crack. And I'd already broken a 40 ounce over his head when he raped me. But that night he just wouldn't, wouldn't stop. And I needed to feel something besides the evil bile from his mouth and brain. And so I grabbed a corner of glass from the broken window and sliced just a little. And the blood that splurted out stopped even him for a moment. And we looked at each other in silence. But then he started some more bile and I wrapped it tight and got a cigarette instead and burned my palm over and over and over. Small whisper of a line across my pelvic area. When I was 18 months sober, she was delivered by emergency C-section after 16 hours of labor and no dilation. My brother and sister photographed it all, and one of them stroked my head as they cut her out of my belly, and they held up a mirror so I could see. But the blood and guts made me woozy despite the morphine haze and they held her up to me and she was bald and sweet and lovely and looked just like my mother before she died and i held her little thumb two barely visible half-inch lines on my upper right stomach i just thought i had bad luck with restaurants and food poisoning or maybe an ulcer but it never occurred to me to go to a doctor when I was lying on the bathroom floor for days at a time puking up foam and writhing in pain A two years sober, I took a chance you goddamn whore, stupid hypochondriac just like your mother and I went for a physical and a week later they removed my gallbladder through my belly button and I never puked again six different small holes in my right hip three of them still bright purple, three of them faded to nearly invisible. When the baby was one, my hips started hurting, and finally I tried a doctor and then another and yet another, and they said it was nothing, or they said I needed replacement, or they said do sports, or gave me cortisone. The pain got worse, and I limped all the time and for a while couldn't even have sex, and the boy I was with gave up, and then so did I. And then someone made me go to someone who knew, and I had orthoscopic surgery. And within two days felt better than ever before but two years later it tore some more and they did it again but this time drilled holes in my bones to try to regrow cartilage and now every step hurts and now at age 43 I need a new hip two inch vertical slot next to my spine on the back of my neck A disc ruptured while I worked out and the next day I went for a job interview on Vicodin, unable to turn to look at the executive asking me questions and certainly unable to smile. A year later it's re-ruptured and I'm waiting for spinal fusion and yet another line on the front of my neck. I will be taken to the hospital by a man who never called me a stupid whore or a cunt or a bitch and who has cared for me through two other surgeries and held my hand when I cried in pain before the meds kicked in, and who lets me rest whenever it hurts, and who doesn't think I am possessed, and who has never tried to rape me, and who loves my daughter as if she were his own, and who sometimes runs his fingers across my scars and loves them because they are mine.
1: Nadia has celebrated 25 years of sobriety And now leads a fulfilling life as a loving wife and mother to her adorable daughter, Sofia. She's not only the author of two compelling memoirs, but has also enjoyed a thriving career in the film industry. She dedicates her time to empowering and supporting women on their journey to recovery from addiction. When you visit Arizona... We are excited to bring you RJ Post's story, Never Get on the Train, an engaging story of an unexpected trip.
2: What passes for a wild time for a middle-aged couple in the Midwest? How about driving through the night to another town so someone else can catch a train? There are some things you need to know about the plane States. Living here can mean driving an hour to the nearest Walmart and being glad it's so close. It can mean driving three hours to drop someone off at the airport and arriving back home long after their plane has landed. Living in someone else's flyover country means the trains don't always run where the passengers are. Transportation policy made far, far away resulted in a long, long night for Don and Deidre when they volunteered to drive their former foster daughter Jasmine to the train station in Hastings Nebraska why are we doing this again Don asked as he piloted the couple's minivan through the hot August night not toward Hastings to the south but Kearney to the west so Jasmine and the baby can visit her birth family and help her Utah Deidre said without looking up from her knitting I think we're living in Helper, Nebraska, Don said. In fact, they lived in Grand Island, which is, of course, not an island, but does have its own Walmart. Two, in fact. One thing it doesn't have is its own passenger train depot, despite the fact that 140 trains from two different railroads pass through town every day. No, the nearest Amtrak station is in Hastings, a charming and progressive city half Grand Island size, 30 miles to the south. Just to add to the adventure, Amtrak's California Zephyr doesn't breeze into Hastings until 1 a.m., when most inhabitants of the town that invented Kool-Aid are snug in their beds, enjoying sweet, fruit-flavored dreams. There's that transportation policy again. Oh yeah! You do realize that Hastings is the other way, Don said, as they drove down Highway 30 through Alda on their way to Wood River, Shelton, and Gibbon. He shot Deidre in a recriminating glance. And you realize that we have to pick Jasmine up where she's living in Kearney, since she doesn't have a car, Deidre said. Just keep your eyes on the road. At 10.30 p.m., a time when Don and Deidre would normally be slipping into their jammies, Lights from the occasional convenience store and the ethanol plant south of Wood River pierced the blackness as the blacktop rolled out in front of them. Forty-five miles into their journey, Don and Deidre pulled into a Kearney mobile home park shortly before 11.30 to see Jasmine toting the last of her bags out onto the concrete parking pad. To Don, it looked like she'd bought out a luggage store, or like the Allies were loading a ship for the D-Day invasion. How long are you going to be gone? he asked. Two weeks, she said. Besides, there's the baby. Are you going to pack him, too? No. Jasmine moaned and rolled her blue eyes as nine month old Mickey, decked out in a Husker t shirt and shorts, dozed peacefully in his baby carrier. Altogether, there were two huge suitcases, a duffel large enough to hold Herbie Husker a pack-and-play, two diaper bags, two additional carry-on bags, the car seat base for the baby carrier, plus assorted blankets, pillows, and a spare jacket. Don loaded the bags into the back of the van, beginning with the larger pieces and artfully squeezing the smaller ones into the spaces between. Deidre got Jasmine and the baby settled, and soon they were headed back the way they came. When they got back to Grand Island, Ninety miles into their journey, they turned south toward Hastings. The Tom Osborne Expressway in August was like driving through a tunnel of corn. On either side of the highway, the van's headlights illuminated dark green stalks as they rocketed along. To Don and Deidre, Hastings was a great place to catch large format movies at the museum or scrounge for bargain books at the library's annual book sale, but they'd never been to the train station. 120 miles into the trip, they wandered around the silent downtown's one-way streets until stumbling on the Spanish Colonial Revival Depot, now given over mostly to a home fixtures showroom. Don unloaded the van. Deidre got Jasmine checked in and her larger bags tagged just before 1 a.m. And then they sat down and waited. And waited. And when they got bored, they waited some more. That's another fact of life on the Great Plains. Despite the rail line's assertion that more than half of Amtrak trains operate at speeds of 100 miles per hour, they rarely arrive on time in the small towns they serve, but rather materialize like ghosts in the night. Deidre explained the ripple stitch on the afghan she was knitting to a curious onlooker. Jasmine watched Space Jam on her phone took the baby into the restroom for a diaper change and returned. Sitting on a wooden bench, Don heard the notification ping from his cell phone and retrieved it from his pocket. It was a text message from Tish, another one of Don and Deidre's former foster kids. Tish. Hey. Don. Hey yourself, how's it going? Tish. You know, blasé, blasé, blasé. Where you at? Don. Don. Hastings. Tish. Why there? Don. Taking Jasmine to the train. What are you doing at this time of night? Tish. Trying not to get wet. Don. What do you mean? Where are you? Tish. Sioux Falls. Waiting for this guy to let me in his house. Don. At two o'clock in the morning? Isn't he home? Tish. Yeah, but his mom don't like me. He's gonna sneak me in when he's sure she's asleep. Wish he'd hurry. Tired of getting wet. Don. Is it raining there? Tish. Yeah. Hey, that's funny. Getting wet in Sioux Falls. Don. Don't just stand in the rain, kiddo. Go to a shelter. Tish. Nah, they threw me out. Don. Well, go to the hospital, to a police station, anywhere. Tish. Cops? Hell no. F that. Then the text messages abruptly ended. Don sent a few more, but none came back. He was sitting there, thinking of a nineteen-year-old girl, standing alone in the dark, in the rain, when he heard the plaintive horn of the approaching California Zephyr. It was 3 a.m. Jasmine picked up Mickey and as much as she could carry. Don and Deidre grabbed the rest, and they shuffled with the other somnambulists out of the waiting room and onto the platform. How's she going to get on the train with the baby and the carrier, four carry-on bags and all this other stuff, Deidre wondered. That's what we're here for, Don said, managing a smile. Out on the platform, the conductor asked Jasmine, how many tickets, and she said, just one for me and the baby. Deidre told the conductor, "'We're just going to help with her stuff,' and he let the couple pass. Jasmine stepped up into the train, and Don and Deidre followed, up a narrow turning stairway to the top level, and then all the way to the front of the car to her assigned seat. As they followed, Don looked out the window of the train and saw bits of the station passing by. "'Backwards!' Staring at the surreal scene, he thought, "'Huh, I wonder where the train station is going?' Then it dawned on him. The California Zephyr was underway, and he and Deidre were still on it. Jasmine sat down with the baby, and the parents quickly handed her the rest of her things. Don said, Bon voyage, kiddo, but we've got to get off this train. Deidre blew Jasmine a kiss goodbye and made a tiny wave at the baby. Don grabbed the nearest conductor and said abruptly, We're not supposed to be on this train. What? The little man blurted. What are you doing on this train? Then he was in panic mode, talking into his walkie-talkie. We've got to stop the train. We've got to stop the train! Despite its other faults, Don could say this much for Amtrak. That train rode smoothly. He and Deidre never even felt it start. But they sure felt it when the train came to a screeching halt. Deidre tumbled into Don who had to grab the overhead luggage rack to keep from falling down. The conductor, very officious in his little conductor uniform, had steam rolling out of his tiny ears, just under his official conductor's cap. The diplomatic Deidre tried to explain that they'd only gotten on the train to help Jasmine with the baby in her bags, but the miniature Martinet was having none of it. He kept saying, You never get on the train! You never get on the train! So the California Zephyr stopped, and the conductor put out his little stool for Don and Edra to step off. The middle-aged couple got down and navigated across the ballast and another set of tracks to an alley between the downtown buildings and the railroad. The little conductor didn't help them. They could still see him steaming in the doorway of the train as it headed off down the tracks to Holdridge, McCook, and other exotic locales to the west. Looking around, they wondered where they were. The train had traveled several blocks before it was so rudely interrupted. But soon, Don and Deidre saw a flashlight coming toward them. It was the station agent, coming to light their way back to the train station parking lot. Don and Deidre were apologetic, but the agent didn't seem upset. He said, It happens. They thanked him for his help, and as soon as they got in the van, both burst out laughing. They laughed all the way home. Deidre said something about the train being late, and Don said, So, now it's a little bit later. And they both burst out laughing again. Maybe it was the time of day and the lack of sleep, but the whole thing struck them as hilarious. 150 miles, plus several blocks, in 5 hours and 39 minutes. That was the night of the long car ride and the short train ride. As a souvenir of the evening, Don and Deidre were left with their own transportation policy. Never get on the train.
1: RJ Post boasts an impressive 30-year career in the world of newspapers as a reporter, editor and manager. What's truly remarkable is that RJ has been weaving stories since long before he could even read and write. To find out more about Nadia Rawlings and RJ post, we invite you to explore our website at www.relatable-media.com. And thank you for joining us. And that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a story that you want us to catch, submit it on our website at www.relatablebestmedia.com. Thank you for listening, and whether you are at home or on the road, we hope you catch this story.